everyone. Welcome to the Light the World podcast. I'm your host, LT World. If you're new to this channel, on this channel we take a look at cultural issues or relevant cultural topics, and we take a look at the history of them, kind of their background, what do people on each side of the topic say, and how do they argue their positions, and we take a look at which side makes the most sense. And we also do interviews on this channel where we interview people who are involved in the culture, involved in entertainment, or have interesting background stories or backgrounds and religion, stuff like that. So if any of that sounds interesting interesting to you, definitely subscribe, definitely follow along whatever podcast platform you're listening to, and you can also check me out on Instagram, Twitter, and at ltworld.info. Now, let's jump into it. So today we are talking about the history of critical race theory. So last episode, we talked a lot about the history of just racism in general in America, going from slavery to present day, looked at slavery and also just Jim Crow laws and stuff like that. Now, on this episode, we're going to be talking about critical race theory specifically. I'm not going to be talking about the roots of critical theory. Um, if you want to learn more about critical theory and the roots of that, I have a, one of my earlier episodes, I talked about critical theory specifically. Um, critical race theory is an off-branch from critical theory. And as we will see, critical race theory also off-branches from another thing as well that we'll jump into. But yeah, so I just want to, let's just jump into it. Talk about CRT or critical race theory. So critical race theory was officially recognized in 1989, and we'll get into why it got recognized then. But just to give you an idea of how the New York Times defined critical race theory, it is an expansive academic framework. Critical race theory, or CRT, argues that historical patterns of racism are ingrained in law and other modern institutions. The theory says that racism is a systematic problem, not only a matter of individual bigotry. This is according to New York Times, um, and that's how they defined it. So that is what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about that theory, which was coined, first coined or first seen in like academic papers by a person named Kimberly Williams Crenshaw, who is a law professor from the UCLA School of Law. Um, and again, we'll, we'll get jump into a little bit about her background. So this is what we're talking about. This is what critical race theory is. This is the person who coined it. And now let's get into the background of how it all got started. So critical race theory originated within U.S. law schools. It started as an academic topic, and it wanted to change how people viewed racism. According to Aja Y. Martinez, I think I might be saying that name wrong. Uh, she's a professor at University of North Texas who has a particular interest in CRT and also has a degree in English as well. So the hope of critical race theory um, during the 70s, the 80s era, was to bring together issues of power, race, and racism to address the liberal notion of colorblindness and argues that ignoring racial differences maintains and perpetuates the status quo with its deeply institutionalized injustice to racial minorities. So this began within the academic sphere, and it was a way to readdress racism. So what was it exactly readdressing, or why did it see the need for there to be this new change in, in the 80s specifically. Well, so in the 70s, following the uh, civil rights movement in the 60s, you had CLS come out, which is critical legal studies. So critical legal studies in the 1970s proposed that laws are just formed to maintain the status quo and thereof perpetuate biases. And it is, it is a broader theory that can encompass CRT. And so basically critical legal studies put forth the claim that actually laws and statutes that get passed by government are actually formed in ways to maintain the status quo or actually are 
or to are reflections of people's biases. So the reason why Congress passes a certain laws is because there's a national bias for that sort of feeling or for that sort of law. And therefore, a lot of times laws and a lot of times things that get passed in, into legislation just oppress the same people and uplift the same people. And that was kind of the whole essence of critical legal studies that I took a look at the civil rights movement and said, why does it take so long and so much time for black people to gain their rights, women to gain rights? Why is it, why is the system so rigid and so unadaptable or slow to adapt? And so the critical legal studies took a look at this. However, at first, critical legal studies attracted a lot of attention, uh, specifically from minority groups who thought it was a good way to critically look at law and the government and a way to critically address racism as well within the legal sphere. However, eventually you'll see they got kind of jaded and very specifically a very specific instance that let, brought up this idea of that critical legal studies wasn't good enough was the Derrick Bell incidents, incidents, incident in 1980. So Derrick Bell was a Harvard was Derrick Derek Bell was a Harvard law professor who happened to be black. And in 1980, he was leaving Harvard Law School. He was going to stop teaching there. And he was well known for kind of teaching almost kind of like this critical legal studies, critical race theories sort of-esque uh, style. Um, according to New York Times, his work explored, among other things, what it would mean to understand racism as a permanent feature of American life and whether it was easier to pass civil rights legislation in the United States because those laws ultimately served the interests of white people. So Derek Bell was kind of um, one of the founders of critical race theory, he really played an integral part in it, and his departure from Harvard Law School in 1980 spurred a lot of attention because the Harvard Law wasn't going to replace uh, Derrick Bell with another black professor. They were going to replace him again with some sort of white professor or something along those lines. And at this time, um, at this time, there was only like one other black professor at Harvard Law School uh, who wasn't Derrick Bell. And I think also in 1983, I think also the yeah New York Times stated that in 1983, that school, the Harvard Law School had 60 tenured law professors, all who were, all but one were men, and only one was black. Um, and that was following, uh, that was following Derrick Bell's departure. And so when a lot of these students and a lot of the law, some of the professors and a lot of the students and stuff in this law school at Harvard realized that Derrick Bell is leaving and that he wasn't going to be replaced with another black professor and actually looked like uh, Harvard Law School was looking at white professors only. There was a student protest. There was a boycott boycott, and, re and, uh, and from resulting from this because of this whole ordeal. And so for several years to follow, there'd be a lot of this tension at Harvard Law School. And as we'll see in 1989 is when critical race theory sort of really got its start. But in 1980, this whole Derrick Bell incident raised a lot of attention. So then in 1983, protests continued to go on and students continued to raise the issue that there's not enough diversity at the Harvard Law School professors, that there's only, as I said, like one black professor and one woman professor in the Harvard Law School of all the tenure professors. And some of the demonstrators during these 1980s protests of the lack of diversity at Harvard included people like Crenshaw, who I mentioned earlier was the pers first person to officially coin the term critical race theory, and Matsuda, who was just another uh, professor of sorts who was a graduate student at the time at Harvard. And 
they thought that they were also under the same sort of understanding as Derek Bell was, as kind of the critical legal studies people were, that um, laws are not neutral, that they are not unbiased. Actually, the American legal system is very biased. And they hoped to bring this to light through critical race theory. So then by the end of the 1980s, once it became, uh, seems to become painfully clear that one, the critical legal studies intellectual group wasn't going to really fight for diversity. And when it became clear that Harvard Law School in general wasn't seeming to pay too much attention or to care, well, this group of people who were disgruntled with everything wanted to form their own group. So, according to A.J.Y. Martinez, who is that professor I mentioned earlier, in 1989, after continued dissatisfaction with the failure of CLS, a number of lawyers left this group and formed critical race theory. So, CLS, they didn't, a lot of the people who formed the critical race theory didn't think critical legal studies group or that intellectual group was doing enough work to intervene on the behalf of uh, minority groups. They thought they were ignoring the issue and not being um, forward enough. So they formed the critical race theory. So a co-founding member, Mary Matsuda, uh, defines CRT as the work of progressive legal scholars of color who are attempting to develop jurisprudence that accounts for the role of racism in American law and that work towards the elimination of racism as a part of the larger goal of eliminating all forms of subordination. Um, Professor Crenshaw was also part of this forming of this group. She was kind of like one of the original founders in 1989 who helped establish uh, this new academic framework. So... A lot of these founders of the critical race theory, they were the ones who pulled together the framework of what we now understand to be CRT. So you had Derek Bell, who played a part in this, uh, who helped give some of the roots to it. You had Mary Matsuda, who helped form this critical race theory group. You had Professor Crenshaw, who first coined the term and helped create a framework uh, during a 1989 workshop study where they would talk about critical race theory and how to basically, they basically took critical legal studies and adjusted and changed it to be more focused on race. Because uh, critical legal studies was just a broad spectrum of like how laws can be biased and how laws perpetuate biases, while critical race theory was like, okay, how does that perpetuate? How did they actually perpetuate race biases specifically? So, due to critical legal studies, and then due to the Derrick Bell incident, which then led to protests, boycotts from students and from professors alike, uh, which then eventually led to people leaving critical legal studies because they didn't think they were involved in the protests enough. They didn't think they were fighting enough for people of minority groups. They formed this group called critical race theory. And so as you can see from the civil rights movement up to the seventies, you had critical legal studies start because they took a look at the civil rights movement and they're like, okay, why did this happen? And why is it taking so long for things to change? They, they formed a critical legal studies saying that laws perpetuate biases in the 1980s, Derek Bell leaves Harvard Law School, not going to get replaced with a white professor. I mean, going to get replaced with a white professor. So students start to protest and boycott throughout the 80s. And then you have the critical legal studies doesn't get heavily involved into the protest. They don't really seem to care. And so people, lawyers and other Harvard Law grads and stuff like that get frustrated, leave critical legal studies group, form their own CRT group, which focused on race hierarchies within America um, and biases within the laws towards race. And so that's how we got to where we are with the critical race theory. And so since I knew this episode was going to be a little, since I knew this history background was going to be a little bit shorter, I also wanted to give a quick overview of the tenets of critical race theory. Because I know when we talk about critical race theory in this upcoming episode, especially where we talk about the arguments for and against it, I want to make sure we understand what I'm talking about 
because again, kind of like gender theory, kind of like some of these other theories, there's a lot of interpretations, a lot of perceptions on the topic that are some more radical, some are more fringe, some are more main core. So I want to make sure we're all on the same topic, same page as of what I am talking about specifically. So I'm going to be focusing on three core tenets of critical race theory specifically that kind of make up the whole theory as it was first proposed within the critical race theory group. So the first tenet, the first main tenet is that racism is a central and permanent and normal part of the U.S. society. So it's kind of like Derek Bell was talking about when he used to teach at Harvard Law. He talked about this idea how racism is just a natural part of America's because of its roots, because of how it started, all that. So it's just racism is just a normal. It's just ingrained into society. And the only way to fix it is to really upend the system as an entire whole. It's just a permanent part of U.S. society. So that's the first main tenet of critical race theory and what it really gets its stuff from. And as you saw from the earlier people I mentioned, that's what they were promoting. The second main premise of CRT resides in its commitment to the centrality of experiential knowledge as detailed through narratives. So because whites do not... Okay, so because whites do not... I'm, I'm quoting someone here because whites do not often acknowledge the experience of people of color. CRT recognizes and has developed the metho methodology of counter story to relate the racial realities of people of color while also providing marginalized people a means to challenge the myths, presuppositions, and received wisdoms that make up the common culture about race and that in, and that invariably, invariably render minoritized people one down. This was by a person called Delgado and Stefan Cheek. I'm saying that name wrong, but there's a paper written by them. So essentially, a second core tenet of CRT is that we need to, people of oppressed groups, people of lower status in society who are oppressed by laws that are inherently racist, um, we must listen more to their stories. We must put more weight on narratives and experiential, experiential knowledge because that's the only way we'll ever learn how people of oppressed groups experience life. Um, so if people of privileged groups, like in this case, white male Americans, if we only listen to their stories, that will we'll never get a true perception of how people of lower oppressed groups, like women, black women who lives in the States, we need to listen more to their stories because their stories don't get told enough and we won't understand them unless we listen to them. So... And specifically, again, through narrative, through stories, not through facts, not through statistics, through storytelling and through what people experience. So the second big premise of CRT is that the experiences and narratives of people of oppressed groups is very important and need to be paid special attention to. And the third main tenet of the critical race theory is that a third premise of the CRT challenges dominant claims of race, neutrality, and equal opportunity, objectivity, colorblindness, and merit. This challenge takes on a hard critical race theory 21 task of calling into question dominant ideology in a Salarazzo and Delgado Bernal argue racialized ideological paradigms act as a camouflage for the self-interest, power, and privilege of the dominant groups in the U.S. society. So the third big tenet of critical race theory is that it's not enough just to fight for a colorblind society. It's not enough just to fight for equal opportunity or objectivity, objectivity or neutrality because, in essence, it's impossible to. Because, as the first premise states, it's just a natural ingrained part of society. Therefore, it's never going to really happen anyway. So, 
The third premise is that it just challenges the dominant claims of race neutrality. It's not good enough to be colorblind. It's not good enough to just be neutral. It's not good enough to have equal opportunity. What you need to do is be almost like an anti-racist. I know that term is thrown around a lot. So a lot of critical race theorists say you need to be anti-racist. You need to fight for diversity. You need to um, do all that stuff. And that's the, that's the only way we can change the dominant ideology of our day, which is racist. Um, and so those are the three main tenets of critical race theory, and that's sort of the background of critical race theory and what we will be talking about during this series um, coming up. And as I jump into the arguments later, this is what we will be looking at, these three tenets, and we'll be taking a look at each of them and understanding how they stand and what people say for and against them and getting a little bit deeper into the weeds. So, yeah, that's all I got for you today. Today was a really quick episode, a really short episode. Um, relative to other ones, but next week's next week episode is going to be a little bit longer as we try to dive into each of these tenets and really tear them apart and look at them from both sides and understand them more thoroughly. If you enjoyed this background and if you look forward to hearing more about critical race theory and understanding the arguments for and against it instead of just hearing the overview of it and its background, definitely subscribe, follow along on whatever podcast platform you're listening to. Check me out at Instagram and Twitter and ltworld.info. And I hope to see you guys join the Light the World community because we are growing here and it's a lot of fun. And I, I thoroughly enjoy this and I hope you guys are thoroughly enjoying it as well. With that being said, please go out there and enjoy your day, guys. And, and actually, I mean, I guess I should end with my catchphrase. <laughs> now, friends, please go out there and light the world. <laughs>